tonight. I'm getting something on the distress channel. Yellow alert. Jim, be careful. Do you know the Klingon proverb that revenge is a dish that is best served cold? Kirstie Alley, Paul Winfield, Ricardo Montalban, Leonard Nimoy, and William Shatner. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, next. I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. Then transfer out! Freak! Two! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Cheap, lying, no good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotting them, worm-headed sack of monkey shit. <laughs> Hallelujah! Holy shit! Where's the Tylenol? And now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner. He's an asshole. And Chris Honeywell. Boy, is he great. It appears we have lost our sex appeal, Captain. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to Two True Freaks. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. On the second Monday of every month, Two True Freaks proudly presents a regular monthly episode devoted to the worlds of Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. As part of those episodes, we've been reading and reviewing our way through the first series of DC Comics' Star Trek comic book series, which began right where Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan ended. In our last Star Trek episode, we reached the end of the last story to take place before the events of Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. And next month, we will be delving into a whole new era of DC's Star Trek adventures that launch from right where this film leaves off. So tonight, join us for a Two True Freaks Encore Star Trek presentation in which we will be examining both of the films that bookend the era of DC Star Trek comics we've been examining. One, perhaps the most popular Star Trek film of all time, and the other, one of the most underappreciated. This is our Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan and Star Trek III The Search for Spock special. I am Scott Gardner, and allow me to introduce my best friend and co-host extraordinaire, Chris Honeywell. Well, hello there, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you survived that overblown introduction. I'm Chris Honeywell, and I am underblown. Take that as you will. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Hence, I may be a little cranky tonight. <laughs> uh, you need to. In- you need to. In- <laughs> we're one minute in. And yeah, already. I know. I yeah. 
you need to introduce our guest. Oh, that's right. We have a guest. <laughs> I was too busy making jokes about about my private parts. <laughs> I'm going to be bringing the gravitas again. Tonight. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is the man overflowing with gravitas. <laughs> it's Mike Poteet. Published Hello. Star Trek author Mark Mike Poteet. Only published authors are allowed into these scholarly <laughs> discussions of Star Trek. None of you other slobs. Hey, you, you're nice guys, but this guy's like, this guy's gotten missives from Paramount telling him what he couldn't write. You bet. You bet, actually, yes. <laughs> so how's it going, Mike? It's going well. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on as a guest. I appreciate hey. it. Thanks for coming back. <laughs> for more <Anytime>. abuse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So we need to get right into this one. So Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Now, uh, I've got notes galore, but uh, no sort of uh, setup for how do, how do we want to do this, fellas? You just want to do like a round robin thoughts, impressions, how you discovered the movie? How, how do you want to go about it? Yeah, that sounds good. That, that this was actually, yeah, this was actually the first, I believe, Star Trek I ever saw. It didn't make me a fan right away. I was only ten or eleven, and it was on HBO a lot, so I, I can remember, you know, watching it whenever it was on. But just because it was a cool space adventure, and I didn't get into Trek really until several years later. But uh, but I really do love Star Trek too, and I was trying to think of exactly why. And I couldn't come up with anything more than what sound like trite answers, but they're so true. It is a fun space adventure. Uh, it's got great action, great pacing. It's got some great characterization, uh, super dialogue, a super vil- not a super villain, but a great villain. Um, it's just a good action adventure movie. And uh, then when I became a Star Trek fan, I could appreciate it that much more. But it just initially hooked me for being an adventure and, and a lot of fun and. Uh, it still is that all these years later. Well, I know you you, you misspoke supervillain and corrected yourself, but yeah. actually, I, I think Khan could be sort of counted as a supervillain. Oh, yeah. You know, well, yeah, I guess, a, yeah. He yeah, did he try to take over the world at He some did, point, genetically you know? enhanced and all that. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and I guess so. He, okay. didn't, he didn't just get in a fist fight with Kirk. He tried to take the Enterprise <laughs> away from him the first time he met him, you know? That's right. He, he glommed onto a girl from the Enterprise and... <laughs> tried to take the ship and now let's address that for a second. That's something I've always been curious about is do you think this this film is is pretty easily accessible to someone who'd never seen that? Because when I saw this movie, I didn't remember Space Seed. I'm sure I probably saw it as a kid, but I I totally didn't remember it. So I mean to me, I I, I always liked that going into the movie and knowing there was history there, but not knowing what the history was. Well, here, you, you were another um, HBO discoverer of this movie, right? Yep, Cause absolutely. Because I, I was a Star Trek fan before Star Wars, you know, when I was a little shaver. I mean, I, that, that was the first thing I taped off TV was a, was a piece of the action. I taped <laughs> it off TV, and then I, right after I watched it, I rushed up into my room to listen to it on the tape recorder and like two days later it ate the tape i was so upset that was my <laughs> first first eaten tape but uh and and 
so you know i saw star trek one in the theaters i was all wound up to see it and kind of disappointed but still but not you know like broken heart you know i i i really enjoyed it as a kid i but i enjoyed it more you know as i grew up so star trek 2 we used to have this magazine called the um was it the Coevolution Quarterly? It, it might have been the Holer Software Review at that time. They kept changing their name. But they had a section called Good Movies. And they devoted a good chunk of it to Wrath of Khan. So I read that before I saw the movie. And, you know, that was in the days where they didn't really have previews on TV. So I didn't know anything about it. But I remembered, you know, the Space Seed episode. And when it came on TV again, I was paying extra attention to it. Because I knew when I saw... Wrath of Khan, you know, that it was gonna, um, you know, be, be based on that. So I was at, I was at Wrath of Khan, like, ready, trekked up, and all, you know, full of Dr. Pepper and at the <laughs> movie theater. Oh, I loved it. it. It is my favorite Star Trek movie. I know that's, like, predictable. And Star Trek Three is my second favorite Star Trek movie. Oh, awesome. So, so, uh, yeah, this is, this is a good show for me i mean i could yeah i could go off about star trek 2 especially watching it so many times in the last couple months in preparation for this episode <laughs> sorry let me ask you chris then since you were a star trek fan going into this had you uh, heard buzz about spock's fate and when it unfolded before your eyes how what was your I reaction had no I-, I had no idea it was coming in the the, the 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 magazine was cool they were not definitely did not spoil it uh-huh. at all and they didn't even hint that there was something you know that was going to happen like that so it came you know and it came completely as a surprise i didn't believe, you know i didn't even believe it was happening i was so in shock until they fired his casket out because i'd seen so many star trek episodes where somebody had died Mm-hmm. And they found some way out of it, and there was a whole theme of Kirk cheating death. So yeah, you yeah. sort of, you know, I can't remember how old I was at at that time, but I thought I was like, ah, it's all about cheating death, haha. Now watch Spock cheat death. He's gonna cheat death any minute now, right? <laughs> Where's Doctor McCoy? He knows how to cheat death, right? Doctor McCoy, he's, what was it? Hey, slip him a triox or something. Yeah, yeah. somebody. <laughs> Somebody yeah, put his brain back in, but he, he couldn't <laughs> back from radiation. <laughs> well, he had help with the brain. So, well, for me, you know, it's it's funny you say that uh, about this being your favorite because, by all accounts, you know, by by any, you know, forgive the term, by any logic, this one ought to be my favorite one because this is really where I discovered Star Trek. Now, granted, I had watched it as a kid growing up mostly because my my older uncles were into it and stuff. So I remember Star Trek being on, but it was kind of just background noise. You know what I mean? It was like any other show of its era, like, I don't know, like Hawaii 5.0 or something like that. It was just kind of on. But, I, you know, I didn't really remember much of it other than, you know, I remember there was an episode where Kirk and, fought, or Kirk and Spock fought, and, you know, there was the one with the pizza creatures. But, you know, I didn't know the names of the episodes and all the... You know, I didn't even know the names of all the, the characters and all the crew and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then Star Trek Two came to HBO. And it was just a big deal, you know, because that was back in the day where you'd get your little HBO, 
almost like a little TV guide pamphlet thing in the mail that would show all the big movies that were coming oh out that God. month. Star Trek two was the big movie that month and they showed it over and over and over yes, again. They did. They did. And once I saw it the first time, that was it. I, I tried to watch it every single time it was on because I just somehow it just hooked me, but it was at that perfect time. You know, it was at that perfect time where, Star Wars and Empire had been out. We were in that that period between Empire and Jedi. So, you know, we were itching for something sci-fi, you know, something space-oriented to to fill that three-year gap between Empire and Jedi. And it was just the perfect time for me to, to discover a movie like this. And it had enough action and, and stuff blowing up and laser fights and all that to grab the star Wars part of me. Mm-hmm. But by this time I was also what 14. And so it, it also, you know, touched the, the side of me that was always interested in science fiction, you know, in, in sci-fi concepts and, yeah. you know, just some of the, the issues that were brought to the table, you know, this isn't, you know, the big cerebral adventure that like Star Trek, the motion picture is, but there's still a lot of heady science fiction in this one. A lot of big concepts. I mean, the whole Genesis device as a sci-fi concept, terraforming and, and the, the science behind that and the ethics of it, that's all there. You know, even if, yeah, so for sure there's a strong science fiction. It holds up apart from Star Trek. If you'd seen nothing else, you could appreciate it as a science fiction adventure. Well, you, you touched on it, you know, with the Genesis thing and the and the whole thing about, you know, the ethics involved. I think that was one of the things, as young as I was, I think that was one of the things that pulled me in and, and made me realize that that was the, the big difference between something like Star Trek and Star Wars is that Star Trek addressed bigger issues and, and addressed things that either Star Wars didn't have time to deal with or just that's not what it was for, but star Trek did. And, and that's really what pulled me in. And it, that really all owes back to this particular movie. I I like the way it's, it's filmed and it's paced. And, you know, for, for this one, having the reputation of being, you know, the slam bang adventure one, I've heard this, I've heard this movie described, you know, alongside say Raiders of the lost Ark. And I'd have to disagree because I think that this movie, while it has a lot of adventure and a lot of action and things like that, it's the quieter moments of this movie that that really appealed to me. It was the the aspect that you could make an adventure film that really captures you and keeps you on the edge of your seat, yet allows itself quiet time and downtime, you know, where there's a, a lot of nice little character moments, which again... You know, to my young mind, discovering this on HBO was one of those big differences that stood out between something like this and something like Star Wars. Is that Star Wars, you don't really get a lot of downtime. It's pretty much go, the go, story. Go. Yeah, go, go, go the whole time. And it moves right along and you don't get character moments. You know, you don't get much I was character gonna- interaction. Yeah, I was going to correct you and say, well, there's some down moments in the in the, you know, in the prequels, but then again, you don't really get character moments in those down times <laughs> anyway. They're just down times. You know, I think uh, not to argue per se, but I think Star Wars and and what Empire had come out by this point, right? By nineteen Empire was 1980, mm-hmm. yeah. so I think Empire especially seems maybe. Uh, 
on a par in terms of blending action and character yes. with Star Trek II. Well, well there's, there's oh. a very similar – I think there's a very good reason for that, and that's the writers. Well, I think so too. And yet I think right. Scott's point overall is – pretty valid because oh, yeah. even though they blend them both they feel differently i guess it's maybe star wars star wars tilts more toward the action and star trek tilts more toward the character and the the philosophy and right but but i think it's clear star trek 2 the creative team took a lot of cues from star wars in terms of pace oh, yes. and action yeah and yet they were very faithful to well they had to the keep series. up with the joneses anyway in, in yeah. movie land at that point because you know what you know just, just the look and feel of a science fiction had been redefined by Star Wars. So you really to, couldn't. You ignored Star Wars at your own peril, right? I mean, science fiction was speaking the language of Star Wars at that point, so you know they had to incorporate some of that. But they incorporated it in in a very Star Trek way. The ships were like schooners that you know that came up beside each other. You know, they oh, they traveled on action. level planes. You know. <laughs> They're, they they weren't ducking and rolling and you know That's sending even, off few, you know thousands of laser bolts. It was it was too big. And if you and whenever I, I don't like playing the Star War, Star Trek video games because you're always piloting these big old Buicks of ships, you know <laughs> that turn slowly and fire. You know you can't fly around and stuff. It's it's all you know big sailing ships. So, it's interesting you mentioned about moving in a plane. Because that's even one of the plot points, isn't it? Where yeah. in the battle in the Matara Nebula, Spock says Khan's pattern indicates two-dimensional thinking. Yeah. Right. Kirk says, "Oh, we're gonna see <laughs> minus ten thousand meters, and down they go." <laughs> yeah, so you're right. You're right. Um, yeah. It, it it it's Empire and this movie both have they're sort of middle movies in in a series of three. And they have that ex- excellent, I mean, excellent writing, excellent directing. And, uh, you know, there's that, that's that's a very similar thing as this one had Nicholas Meyer and mm-hmm. on board. And, uh, and you know, I think I think the last movie he'd done before that was probably Time After Time. Yeah, that's I really love cool. that movie. Which is another that's great movie cool. with action and downtime yeah. and character yeah. development and just and good acting. I think Star Trek 2 of all the Star Trek movies ever made and all the Star Trek TV shows ever made. Not that I've seen all the TV shows, but I I'll I can pretty much guess this one had the best acting of any Star Trek movie ever. The acting was just pitch perfect everywhere across the board and Nimoy and and uh if you're talking Shatner, the full the full ensemble cast I would probably say so, but uh, I'm going to come back to that at least with one major member of the cast in Star Trek Three. There's there's one person in particular that I think really shone in the next movie. And uh-huh. I'll back to that. But but what what cements this is my favorite movie are they're not the only reasons it's my favorite of the movies, but what 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 really make it for me is Spock's death scene is yeah. the greatest acting in all of probably in all of Shatner and Nimoy's career at the same yeah. time also yeah. and it's so awesome you know it's just so well done and I defy anybody who has any even who just came in for this movie and doesn't know the characters not to get choked up 
during that scene. Bit. And if you know the characters, it's heartrending. You know, yeah. it's just... I mean, and, you know, Shatner is made fun of for his over-the-topness, and, you know, Nimoy is just always playing Mr. Spock, but that scene is so intense, and Shatner plays it perfectly. Yes, you know? he does. It is a beautiful scene, and, and I will say, I, I would agree it's the finest acting I think William Shatner turns in as Kirk since since the days of the early first season, maybe. I think um, he's just wonderful in the role throughout yeah. and there's not the the sort of ham-fisted scene chewing he's often made fun of for uh in fact i remember listening to nick meyer's commentary on the dvd he says in that scene where they're uh fighting the reliant for the first time and he, they're gonna you know they've they've lowered the reliant shields and kirk's line is here it comes nicholas meyer said they had to shoot that thing several times that it took a while for meyer to convince shatner just Dial to it sort down. of play it down to downplay say here it comes Apparently Shatner was doing too many naughty, winky kind of readings of that line, and Nicholas Meyer here telling him, comes. Oh, just, just say it, just say it. And here it comes, and it's beautiful. And yes, the the death scene is just the moment that gets me in the death scene every time. I know it is coming. I know it's is, coming. It's I never took the Kobayashi Maru test until now. What do you think of my solution? I mean, what is Jim Kirk who cheated the test and who's so used to winning all the time? I, mean, I think I think you can tell that moment just takes the win. He's already devastated, but Spock's just making an, 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 an interesting observation, I guess, to his logical mind. Right, right. But uh, but to, it, it's like a kick in the gut, and you, I feel it when when Spock says it, and it's almost like Shatner does this thing with. I'm using my hands as though you can see me over the podcast, but you know <laughs> this thing with his head where it's sort of it's like part apologetic and part tearful and part I don't know. It's just. He plays it beautifully. It's a wonderful performance. The best William Shatner turns in in any Star Trek movie, I think. Um, and, and Nimoy is is superb, of course. And so, it's uh, it's yeah, it's the only moment where you see Kirk just break down and surrender and just go blah. I'm I'm and done. the scene with David immediately after the funeral uh, in yeah. Kirk's quarters. That's a beautiful yeah. scene. You know, see what gets what oh. <laughs> What gets me in the in the death scene is when Spock walks over and just runs into the wall, uh-huh. and then just straightens out his uniform. That was just it was almost theatrical, you know, the 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 way it was done. But at the same time, it was just it was this one rare moment where you see the character completely, you know, you see Spock completely out of it and trying to pull it together. Yeah. From the edge of death, and and he doesn't see the gl- you know he doesn't see the glass. It's just yeah. so non Spock like, and yeah. it's at that point that you start realizing that wow, this might be you know, this might be it, you know, and right. that's just and 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 Kirk is the same way. He he's just at that moment he's just like oh no, <laughs> <laughs> it's a yeah it's a classic scene. But that, yeah, that's that's one of my notes actually. That uh, that that scene still makes me cry every time I watch this movie, and it shocks me that it does, because my my personal feelings for Leonard Nimoy have changed a lot over the years, to where I really don't care for Leonard Nimoy. Oh, really? And I really didn't like him even being in the latest one. So, but I mean, I just recently I never met him. So. <laughs> I mean, I haven't ever met him either. No, but I know I'm, what you mean. So that's but, interesting. You know, 
I just watched, you know, rewatched the the latest one, so I know darn well that Spock survives, you know, right up yeah. to the, the newest yeah. movie. Yet yeah. here I am watching Star Trek Two, you know, day before yesterday, and crying again at the at the Spock death scene. I think that really speaks a lot to that that moment that it can evoke that emotional response every single time I watch it. Yeah. Knowing what happens later. It's it's right just, in the next movie. You yeah. Know? It's really and really. uh and that and the Kobayashi and the concept and the idea of the Kobayashi Maru and how that sort of holds the movie together and the the whole needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few and how every conversation comes back and means something in the in the whole story. And uh that's that's I think in this in this movie alone is the most coherent scripted and acted and directed Star Trek thing ever, you know. It, it, there's there's some episodes of the original series that come close, but this has every element firing on all cylinders. The 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 rapport between you know everybody's just got gotten together and they've had an adventure but they still haven't really caught up to each other by Star Trek two they're starting to get back into the flow of things and go oh yeah I remember what it's like being on the Enterprise yeah, yeah. and uh, you know Spock was starting to get back into his being around humans mode and uh, you know this movie is about them all reconnecting and having to reconnect to solve this con problem. And using all their tricks that they've learned, and and uh, you know the movie just masterfully keeps switching between who you think is in control of the situation until the end, when you find out Kirk and Spock have been completely manipulating everything. You know, once they once they got a beat on Khan, they just yeah. they, you know they and they did it was without even like a meeting on the uh, you know around the the boardroom table they just knew you know <laughs> spock you know they all they had to do was you know talk to each other in a certain way over the yeah, communicator yeah. and and they knew what was up and that was awesome because it was it was written so that was completely believable oh yeah you know so and, and <laughs> it made sense and and you know the moment you start the you, you know the moment you start realizing the kirk and spock have been just stalling for time and messing with Khan and and you know working out their plan is the same time all the other characters are starting to get a clue of that too and it's great right. you know you have that moment where everybody's just like but wait a minute what are we doing <laughs> by the book <laughs> <laughs> now at the risk before we leave the death scene entirely at the risk of sounding like a heretic there is one problem with how it all unfolds that I didn't really noticed for years and years until the first time I watched it with my wife and she pointed it out to me and I said oh darn I guess she's got a point there's we there's no specific reason to think that uh, that Spock is the only well let me put it this way it's sort of like the playwright Anton Chekhov said if you put a gun on the mantle in act one you have to shoot you it, have by, to act use three. it by act three yeah that thing whatever Spock's doing that magic mixing bowl that fixes the engines Mm-hmm. It's not put on the mantelpiece, really. I mean, you see it in the inspection scene. But I always have wished – well, not always. Since my wife pointed this out to me, I've wished there were some throwaway line about, oh, I see we developed a new way of 
bringing the mains back online or something. Yes, but it's so dangerous. Only you know something to set it up that we know that. Or you see, totally yeah, you see Scotty coming happen. out in a lead outfit or something and going. Something just to say this six is inches of blah 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 in between me and that captain because yeah, I'd be I mean I feel like really a yeah, but then you're telegraphing that that's yeah. going to come up later in the film, and I hate that stuff. Well, you know? I agree with you. Telegraphing is bad, but it it does sort of. You have, to, you have to get it. You have to get it in there where nobody really um, notices it, it. It's that you know. It's got to be something. It would have to be something you only picked up on a second or third viewing. You know, and go. Oh yeah. yeah. I, feel I don't know. Really I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil's up. advocate and say you know the fact really? that this movie is is going on you know 28 years old and still going strong and still winning new fans and, and entertaining people over and over again speaks to the fact that I, I don't I don't think that there's any explanation lacking in that part. I think it's you know, whatever he's doing fixes the ship, you know. And right, I think right. That's all the explanation that you need in that part. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the Fraza motor has to go over the the tension bar and be hooked on by five Y clamps. <laughs> Otherwise she overloads. Well, at this point, I think we should just uh, go around again, and uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've got a ton of notes that I want to get to before our next segment. Just start so, throwing uh, them out, man. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, first of I'll all, respond to them. Probably one of my biggest notes here, and these are in no particular order or anything, just more than anything, just as they occurred to me rewatching the film. First and foremost, James Horner's score, and I'm pretty sure I discovered James James Horner with the score to this movie and he's one of my favorites today but man this is a great score it's Amen to really, that. really good you want to you know, know I, something really geeky about my reaction to the score when i was watching it in fifth grade on hbo i remember it was going to be on one friday night and i asked one of my friends are you going to watch star trek 2 tonight you know that part in the end credits where the the main themes come back in a march tempo <laughs> <laughs> i should have known then i was doomed to a life of geekery right <laughs> there you go but it is great music it is super it is it's fantastic i mean you know i i hear james horner knocked a little bit within like the film score you know enthusiast community you know because he reuses a lot of his material and stuff like that and and this particular score star trek 2 is very similar to a couple other scores he did like cocoon and um crawl it shares an awful lot in common with crawl but still i I think it's just distinctive enough and just star trek enough that it's really a a great score i really like it a lot to to put it back to sort of rock and roll frank zappa was sort of like that you know you'd listen to something and you'd hear themes that would crop up in different places and you know what so what if he's using them in different movies because they're soundtracks but they're also a body of work by a composer right so for some themes to run through there and and you know, it's it's like you know, this is the James Horner style of of presenting action or romance or you know whatever he you know emotion is being shown on screen and that he's he's doing and he does it very well. You know, I mean, right. I don't know, I I I see no reason to pick on him, especially since no, I, his music is so enjoyable. Oh you know? no, I I'm a big fan, big big fan uh-huh. of James Horner. He's done some of my absolutely favorite movies, so no, I'm I'm a huge fan. Um, something that occurred to me, maybe consciously for the first time with this one, 
Ahura. I don't think Ahura ever looks as good or or better than she does in this particular movie. You know, I always thought she was kind of cute on the old show, but then, you know, I, I didn't find her particularly attractive. And then, you know, in Star Trek 1, she had that, you know, the very much the 70s afro thing going on. But then in this one here, she just, I don't know, there's just something about the the way that she's she's made to look and she's wearing her hair and everything. I, I think she looks yeah. really, really good in this one. But then in the next movie, she's back to like the, or not back to, but she's got like the the jerry curl thing that was going on, you know, in, right. the, in the mid-80s, you know, right. where she, she looks like that guy from... Uh, coming to america there you know the guy that's always coming around in his in his trans am or whatever it is right, she's got right. that kind of hair but in star trek 2 she doesn't have she's just i don't know she just looks really good in this one well at least in star trek 3 and i know we'll discuss this more later but at least in star trek 3 she has an awesome character scene to make up for whatever yes. the merits or lack thereof the, of the hair are because i was thinking today that the ensemble shines more in star trek 3 than in star trek 2 star yes, trek 2 is really absolutely. kirk spock and mccoy i mean uh, Scotty gets a, a nice little moment about sh- uh, shore leave, Admiral, and you know, and of course he gets and Duan gets to play a great grief scene when Peter Preston is killed. Yeah. Um, uh, Chekhov is a major player in in everything, um, but Uhura, I I couldn't think of a, any even just a nice moment that she gets in this. Um, she's sort of there doing the hailing frequencies open. Uh, maybe I'm forgetting something, but. She has a couple, couple lines and things like that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, she, of all of them, I, I think she was probably the most shorted up until that big moment you're talking about in three. And yeah, that was something I, I had planned to, to come back to as well when we get to three. Was that's yeah, one of the reasons I like three so much is, is that more of the, uh, you know. Supposedly, there's a rumor out there that that Shatner referred to the rest of the cast as the Seven Dwarves. So, uh, using that analogy, uh, whether it's true or not, that the rest of the Seven Dwarves got to kind of step into the spotlight a little bit with the third movie, and that's one of the reasons I like that one so much. Yeah, is that yeah. you know, more of the rest of the cast was was spotlighted. Um. Now. Here's my moment of geekery for this one, but uh, I've got to point this out because this is one of my, from one of my favorite movies. The view out of Kirk's apartment window, you know, when we're when we're seen, you know, when we're shown Kirk's apartment, uh-huh. that view is actually from the opening to the towering inferno where the helicopter uh-huh. is flying up to the glass tower. I really? love that. That's one of my favorite movies. One of my favorite. Uh, uh, John Williams scores opens that movie, and uh, I just, I've always thought that was cool. Ever since I learned that, and I don't know where I learned that, but ever since I learned was that, was it now, copied? Was it like a now. tribute to it, or they actually like rear projected the towering inferno out Kirk's window? Well, it's it's like a scene of like San Francisco Bay that this helicopter flies uh, by, and everything. There's like the city out there, so. Whatever that was, a matte painting or a right. cityscape or whatever, that that's the view that's out Kirk's window is is the same one from Towering Inferno. I just always thought that was that's really pretty cool. cool. Yeah, ever since I learned that, I can't watch this movie and see that part and not think of Towering Inferno. I don't. That's just weird. <laughs> now, this was a sad thought that occurred to me while watching this movie. I was watching the scene, one of the scenes that's. Uh, 
think it's right after they finish basically putting all the information into the Genesis device and everything. And there was a nice little scene between uh, Merritt Buttrick and uh, B.B. Bash. And it suddenly hit me. Damn, a lot of these folks are dead now. Yeah, I mean, a yeah. lot of the people in this movie are dead now. And it just really hit me for the first time on yeah. this viewing. You know, because Merritt <laughs> yeah, Buttrick's been true. dead a long time, and yep. B.B. Bash, uh, Ricardo Montalban just died not long ago, um, DeForest Kelly, Jim Dewan. I know I'm forgetting some other folks in there, I think too, Judson I think. Scott, who plays Joaquin, is dead as well. Yeah, as I, I think recall. you're right. Uh, yeah. They both yeah. did an episode of The Next Generation together, Merritt Buttrick and, and uh, Judson Scott, but but both died it's shortly the one after. Where it's like Planet at War, and they were on drugs or something. Yeah, like that. exactly. Yeah, I think it's yeah. a great episode. Apparently, it's not most people's favorite, but I loved it at the it's time. Just been a love it. Since I, yeah, it's been a long um, time since I've seen it. I can't remember all what the story was. Now, it's I remember Merritt Patrick didn't look very good in that episode, though no, he looked sick no. or something. It's interesting that Judson Scott chose not to be credited for Star Trek Two. I wonder. I guess he regretted that later on by coming back to do TNG. Right. But, uh, as I read somewhere, oh, is he not credited? Said, no, he's not credited. He he chose not to be and uh, didn't want his name associated with the film. And uh, I guess he thought better of it later. I read somebody writing somewhere said, uh, you know, it never hurts to be associated with a popular hit film. So <laughs> I guess he had what some. What's his reasoning for that? I don't know what his reasoning was. Maybe he didn't think it would. You know, maybe, maybe he thought, he thought he'd, get type, he'd get typecast. Yeah, I, yeah, huh. I get typecast. But he's not wow. credited. Uh-uh. Wow. So, but he does huh. a great job in the role. Yeah. I like, I, I like Joaquin I a lot so. and uh, how he tries to stand up to Khan. I mean, we never see any of Khan's followers do that in Space Seed. I guess Marla MacGyver's maybe a little bit, but she's not one of Khan's people, per se. Uh, but, and especially, I was going to say, I just reread the novelization for Star Trek Two, and... Uh, Vonda McIntyre, who writes this and the novelization for Star Trek Three, um, she does a lot with Joaquin's character, and really, he like he shows what goes on at Regular One uh, when Khan's trying to get the Genesis information, and Joaquin comes yay close to actually not following through on Khan's orders, and you get really into his head and and uh, his issues with his loyalty to Khan versus he still retains some sense of basic human decency, you know, and. So it's very interesting. I, I don't want to digress from your notes, Scott. Sorry, but no, no, please, because it's been so long since I've read that book, and I, I the only thing I can really remember about that I really need to reread it is I remember that uh, there's a mention of Sulu's girlfriend from the Entropy Effect. Yes, there is in that Captain book. Flynn. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and I remember isn't one of Carol Marcus's people a Delton? Two of them are. There's a Delton oh, couple. Uh, oh, okay. And Jetta is the male Delton, and Jetta is mentioned in the film. He's on screen. He doesn't look Delton to me. I thought they He's were. He's got hair. Yeah. He's got hair, but I suppose, you know, I don't want to commit Star Trek racism, so maybe some Deltons have hair. I don't know. But uh, he much could have made plugs. Where's Wick? Yeah, he's got yeah. plugs. Much, much Space plugs. Deltons in the, Space in the novelization. <laughs> Space plugs. <laughs> They took some cues from Shatner. Right? We beam follicles of your actual hair directly into your scalp. 
All right, live now, hair you... from the crack of your buttocks. Transfer <laughs> deer scalp. Works on Deltons, Vulcans, humans. All hominid life forms. <laughs> All right, we've glowed and glowed and glowed about this movie, but it does have some problems. Uh-oh. Now, I'm not going to go down the road that's been gone down a million times about why does Khan recognize Chekhov. I think that's just beating yeah, a that's... dead horse. But I've got a better one for you. Or at least okay. I think it's a better Lay one. Lay it on us. Actually, this is a three-part better one. Oh. All right. Why didn't Chekhov call for an emergency beam out when he realized about the Botany Bay? That's always bugged me. Yeah, he, get the he hell out waste, of there. Yeah, he wastes time not well, telling the captain anything, trying to get him to come outside and put their helmets back on when they could have just as easily beamed right out of the cargo container. Could they? Okay? Could they? Could they? Because remember, and it's in Star Trek Three also, much is made many times of beaming coordinates. I'm not sure the transporters in this era can do what they do in the next generation where you can beam anywhere you want was, to at any time. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think that storm now, are you sure these are the right coordinates? Captain, this is the garden spot of City Alpha 6. Uh, you could I, mean, be I think right. there's a prearranged beam-up point, and they have to get there. And so they're doing the best that, you know, Chekhov realizes too late, and uh, they're trying to get out of there as quickly as possible. Okay. It's, it's, you know what? I think you're right now that you say that. I mean, that, that answers my second part, which was... Why couldn't the Reliant just lock onto the captain and check off or their suits? And I, I guess, yeah, that I think you're right now that you say that. I'd forgotten the thing about prearranged coordinates and all that sort of thing. You know, that got, I'd gotten used to the TNG style. Right, right. Exactly. I had too, but I yeah. think the transport is more limited in TOS era and, and the, the original series era films. So, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Well, here's, and, here's and the way last that one. Dramatic tension. Now, this one, I, I don't, to my mind anyway, is a lot harder to solve, though. Why in the world did the captain and first officer beam down alone? Oh, you Chekhov's could say that about any original episode, though, Scott. I mean, come on. Yeah, but... Kirk and Spock are beaming down alone all the freaking time in the original series. It was apparently standard operating procedure. Well, in the, yeah, we but just watched Cat's Paw and, like, pretty much, you know pretty much all the <laughs> chain of command ended up beamed down onto yeah, the planet. I mean, yeah, that, you're that, right. that's not a, that's just the way they did it back then. Don't but you remember still Jake Bay's speech right. in that Voyager episode? <laughs> <laughs> About the rough and ready Alpha Quadrant back in the day? <laughs> you're just making it harder to write stories, man. Ah, uh, you know, that's my job. All right, <laughs> maybe, here's... Maybe, maybe Starfleet Command took this incident into account when they made the policy about no captains beaming down. <laughs> yeah. Now, this Look is probably happened. more of a criticism of Paramount than any any real criticism of this film or Nick Meyer or anybody like that. But just simply having seen Star Trek The Motion Picture so many times as I have, there's way, way too much stock footage used in this movie. I mean, most of your shots of the Enterprise that aren't involved with it fighting... Um, the Reliant or pulling up alongside regular one, just about any of the other shots are stock footage from the first movie. And that yeah, but what really does track me crazy. <laughs> it's back oh, yeah. to my Gene Roddenberry conspiracy theory. They hated him. He pissed them off to me. You know, they, even though Star Trek II, you know, they had to prove themselves. They were probably fighting. That's probably why there is a more action 
Star Wars-y to it because they had to strike that balance to get it in on budget, which meant oh, yeah. stock yeah, footage. And they had been given a smaller budget because Star Trek Motion Picture had all the production costs of the film itself and of Star Trek Phase Two charged against it. Right. So, you know, that's why they brought in people from Paramount's TV unit to do Star Trek Two, and I think they did a great job. And yeah, the stock shots are there, yeah. but hey, the guy in the spacesuit does a backflip. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, how could you? <laughs> I'll see that again, sure. It's been a while since I read it, but I remember, I'm pretty sure it's in the Nitpicker's Guide where he makes a joke about, uh, you know, that the one guy has the job as the designated waiver, you know, the guy who always waves <laughs> to the ship as Hi, it's everybody. Yep. Space talk. Yeah. Hey, somebody's got a boost. Here's something that occurred to me while I was watching. Because I watch these, when I, when I watch original series episodes for the show, you know, for Two True Freaks or, uh, you know, like when I watch these movies, if I can rope my kids into watching with me, I really try to get them to sit down and watch it so that there's a fresh pair of eyes eye. seeing it. And so we're watching this and... I thought this made a great note because I pointed it out to my kids and then I got to thinking, hey, that's a good note, is the part where Kirk, Spock, and McCoy go to Kirk's quarters and they're going to watch the Genesis material Mm -hmm. and the computer scans Kirk's retina. Yeah. That was science fiction when this movie came out. (laughs) And that's, I mean, they use that. no big deal now, yeah. Yeah, it's no big deal. But I just thought that worth pointing out, you know, for for some of maybe our younger listeners or what, that, you know, Star Trek has contributed so much. I'm hoping sometime in our lifetime we can say, yeah, you know, and Beeman, then that was science fiction. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. It could could happen. You never know. But, yeah, I, I just thought that was... I never really thought about that before, you know, because, you know, there was a show not long ago. What was it? William Shatner. How William Shatner changed the world or something like that. that. And it it talked about, like, communicators and just all this other stuff that if you sit and think for five minutes, okay, what what do we have in the modern world that might have come from Star Trek? You'll think of all the obvious things, but like retinal scans, you know, I never really thought about it before. But when I saw that scene, I was like, holy cow, that's right. Because uh, not long after that, I think it was a year or two later, was uh, Never Say Never Again, a James Bond movie, used the same thing. And it was still science right. fiction at the time. Well, I know Star Trek has always prided itself on consulting with NASA and Jet Propulsion Laboratory and other places about what's in the works. So right. they might have had a technical advisor say, uh, like they went, we need some futuristic verification of identification. And oh, well... Uh, you know, we're working on retina scans. Oh, that sounds good. So they put it in the movie. I'm just speculating, but that could be. Now, in that scene, Scott, you're the Disney expert around Two True Freaks Land. I mm-hmm. have heard or read somewhere, I think, that uh, the Genesis animation was one of the first things Pixar did. That it may not have been called Pixar at this point, but I, it's one of the first instances of computer animation in a major I, motion picture. It, it, and, it's yeah. definitely that. Yes. And that I think it's Pixar's doing. So Now that you say that, I think that some folks that were involved with Pixar may have had a hand in that. I was actually thinking, it's when you said awesome. NASA, it got me to thinking, I think NASA may have had a hand in that as well. I, it may have been, gosh, this is really straining. NASA may have lent them the computers to do it. Yeah, you know? I think, you know, mm-hmm. similar, okay. to, similar to how... <laughs> Ballard was able to finance his Titanic expedition by going to the Navy and saying, hey, we want to test this out. 
type of thing. I think part of how Star Trek may have been able to do the whole Genesis thing is they went to like NASA or somebody that had all this tech and said, hey, we want to do this. And it was some sort of joint. I could be dead wrong, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've read something to that effect. But yeah, I think you're right. I think that the 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 thing that eventually became Pixar may have been involved, but I'm pretty sure NASA had a hand in all that. That could somewhere. be too, yeah. Well, it's a Florida. beautiful piece of animation, and it holds up 27, 28 years later. It's still great yeah. to watch. I mean, and, and it was one of those, I mean, you know, nowadays a, a video get you know, the smallest handheld video game could do, could do that in real time. Oh, yeah. But when they well, did that, when they did that, mm-hmm animation there it was basically rendered one frame at a time if even yeah. that it probably was re- rendered a pixel at a time or a I'm line sure a stripe intensive. yeah and it was just well they probably just had to set the computer that's when i was in film school that's how you did computer animation you would you would map it all out with wireframes and then you would hit record on the the special probably like ten thousand dollar video you know vcr that would hook into the computer and right. it would literally sit there, and you you could watch the the line go across the top of the TV screen as it slowly mm-hmm. rendered the first line of of the first cell, <clears throat> and on and on and on. And I think that's how they. Did, I'm positive that's how they did that animation. That right. And uh, but at the time it was amazing looking. You know, it was amazing seeing it because you saw it and it was like, wow, this is obviously computer generated. And if it's not, it's the most painstakingly drafted piece of animation that you could ever do. Right. And uh, yeah, that was that was definitely groundbreaking. Speaking of video games, this is probably my weirdest note is uh, that exact piece of footage that we're talking about, the whole Genesis sequence with the DNA strain and then how it shows the the Genesis device be delivered to the planet and terraform the planet and all that. How, did either of you guys ever see a video game back in the 80s called Astron Belt? Yes. Hmm. No, I haven't. That, that video game, Astron Belt... I used Belt, to have it at the CVC down the street from my house. Oh, really? Yeah. The only place I ever saw this game, there was a mall in um, in Fulton, New York. I used to go and, and uh, see my cousin in the in the summertime. Sometimes I'd stay with my cousin, and there was this little mall. It was like the Pyramid Mall or something like that. And they had it for just a short while before they got rid of it. And it was expensive at the time. It was the very first laserdisc game. It actually used a huh. laserdisc to to read the game. And what it was, was it used video footage from the Laserdisc, and then it overlaid a computer graphics ship and lasers. So you were actually fighting images that were film, but your ship was like a little computer graphics ship. And it used footage from Star Trek III The Wrath of Khan and Battle Beyond the Stars and some... I think it was a Japanese science fiction film. And it was yeah. the most bizarre game. It also it had the really... Enterprise going into hyperspace at That's one point. That's right. Yeah. It, on the, I think that was on either how the game started or it was part of the attractor. Yeah, I remember They're that. Going into warp, pardon me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was really it was really cool. It was very different. 
and uh, it didn't play. The gameplay wasn't very good, but it no. was. And like the Japanese one, basically, like there was one where you're flying through a cavern or a chasm, mm-hmm. and you know it was obviously like a plaster model from a cheesy movie. You know, it was just really fake looking, but it was filmed fake looking, so it was just mind blowing at the time. Right. And then Dragon's Lair came out after, shortly after that. Yeah, oh, I always wanted to play Dragon's Lair. I didn't get to go to arcades, so I would look at Dragon's Lair every time I saw it with <laughs> I longing. Think, you know? I think there's ways now of playing it on your computer with an emulator. Uh, yeah, yes. but it's probably not as cool now. <laughs> no. They released it as a DVD game not long ago. Yeah. That you could yeah. Play remote. Now, I like... Uh, there's a couple just moments in this film that I like that are like subtler moments. Like I love the shot of the Enterprise just quietly pulling up alongside regular one. I don't know what it is about that shot. I've just always really liked it. It's just... Because it's reminiscent know, of the TV show. Ah, that it's could be enter, it. It's entering, the, you know, it's doing the bomb, ba bomb, entering the scene and pulling into or- orbit, you know. it's Yeah. Yeah. It does. It's like there's no music, there's no fanfare. You just quietly hear like the engines, you know, kind of yeah. wind down as it pulls yeah. up right along. I just love that. And then uh, when they go over to the station, and you know, Horner's music in that mm-hmm. in that portion is really spooky. And to me, it's very reminiscent of some of the spookier moments of the original series. It, it doesn't. Yeah. He's yeah. not aping it. So much as he's just kind of homaging it, and it, it really works. But I love how Kirk is the only one who has his collar all flared up. So Kirk looks like the cool one with his, right. his space jacket with his flared up collar. You know, and he's I had never fucking, thought about that, but you're right. He I probably was it. on the set and was like, "I have to do something to stand out." <laughs> exactly. He this, always this guy Meyer. He won't let me chew the scenery. It's pissing me off. I'll flare my collar. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> now, uh, up until recently, this was the only Star Trek film that hadn't had a uh, a comic book adaptation. But IDW just recently did it. Did oh, either of you guys right. read that? No, I haven't. I passed on it. I flipped I through it so well. I didn't feel like reading the comic. That's how I was too. I thought, yeah, what can they really give me? That sort yeah, of a formality. For sake, it has a comic adaptation now, but I. But, yeah, but I like it. I like the idea more of the adaptation coming out when, when, or just slightly before the movie, or just right. slightly after, somewhere around when it's fresh. So the so the the comic will ha- have the freshness of the movie too. There'll be some stuff that they didn't get right because they were trying to do it before yeah. and that got cut out and all that all that fun stuff that make them fun. But when you get something like a new adaptation of it, it basically ends up being just sort of an illustrated version of the you know it's not far from a photo novel yeah right. and then it's just like is the art good because otherwise it's just a formality yeah i flipped through the first issue and the art was really nice uh-huh. and granted you know i did not read it but from just a quick flipping through it's very it looks very much like you said it just looks like an illustrated photo novel so i didn't see where it really added anything but i'd, I'd like to hear from somebody who actually did Mm-hmm. You know, buy it and read the whole thing to know. You know, uh, am I right or am I wrong? You know, is it is it worth picking up? Because I, I kind of just dismissed it as too little, too late. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, 
I was interest. I would have been interested when it originally came out, but this one was just like, oh, okay. And they do so much stuff like that nowadays that yeah. that you know it, it, it's so easy to pass pass it up once you've seen it. And, and I've bought a few things that were adaptations of movies from earlier, and yeah, they're very underwhelming, you know, because they don't give you anything new. They're sort of like an artist paying tribute. And, you know, it might have been interesting if they, you know, adapted it from the novel. So it would have some of the that extra shading. That could have been yeah, interesting. Yeah, the novel is really a fascinating read. I mean, she embroiders on just about everything that she can. And some of it's really good. There's a wonderful whole... The, you get to see the debriefing scene after the Kobayashi Maru, for ah. example. And it is so fabulous. And I won't spoil the specifics, but Safik gives it to Kirk you know she she stands up for herself and and uh you know takes him to task and and about it sort of what she perceives as his paradoxical way of looking at the test I'm not gonna spoil like I said but that's that's in there sometimes she makes some missteps like um there's a whole subplot at the end where Sulu in the final fight with the Reliant uh, gets badly burned and and wounded by his console exploding, and David Marcus saves his life. And so Sulu's not around for the final part of the book. Now, whether that was in the first draft script and got cut, or whether it was McIntyre just doing something extra with Sulu, I don't know. But it doesn't. I mean, in some ways, I guess it makes David a more heroic character, right? Uh, huh? Because so that plays okay I guess but there are other parts where she will take what's a simple line in the film and replace it with a five paragraph conversation Yeah, yeah no. but she does a great job of um, giving us a view of who these scientists on regula are we mentioned the Deltons earlier but she goes into great detail about the, the, the theories behind Genesis and the people and the personalities and uh, we find out that one of the scientists was having a relationship with Carol Marcus and uh, that sets up stuff for McIntyre's next two novelizations of the next two films um, there's a lot of stuff all of Savick's backstory is in the novelization that isn't on screen um, so that would make it interesting I mean I just recommend it as a, as a, as a good read I think her novel for Star Trek 3 is actually superior but uh, the Star Trek 2 novel very much worth uh, picking up um, there's also a great subplot I'm using the word great and super every time I speak. I need to find <laughs> different words. There's a yeah, I use very, awesome constantly. There's a very so compelling subplot about Peter Preston. Uh, it turns out the kid is 14 years old. And we, we actually do learn in, the, in a deleted scene that's on the DVD now that he's Scotty's nephew. But uh, he has a lot of conflict about – he's been trying to keep it secret. you know. And once Scott tells Admiral Kirk, oh, my sister's youngest, crazy, get to space, you know. Peter's just mortified, and he, he does something to act out on that, and it's a lot of fun. Um, but also, it turns out he has a big schoolboy crush on Lieutenant Savick, and I did too at the time that this movie was, you know, I, and I in some ways still do. I just think in 1982, Kirstie Alley was beautiful, and her playing that part, she's smart, she's sexy, she's, you know, determined and brave, and oh, I just, I love Kirstie Alley Savick, and... Um, we can talk about the Savick switch when we get to Star Trek Three. Well, well the so women had Spock to having a crush on Lieutenant Savick. Yeah, and the and the women had you know Spock to crush on for all these years. It's time to, uh, um, you know, have a female Vulcan for the for the guys. Absolutely, <laughs> she's, she's one for the boys. Far far better than T'Pol in my book. Yeah, that's all we had up to that point. I'll no, well, we had well, we had Spock's betrothed too. Was 
Well, not 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 to Pal, to Paul from uh, Enterprise, the uh, uh, supposedly you know sexy female first officer on Enterprise. I thought you meant to Pal. No, uh, no, not not to Pal. <laughs> I th- originally, I think she was supposed to be a young T'Pau, and they ended originally, up changing that idea. I don't know why. Yeah. That actually could have been interesting. But uh, yeah. my, my last thing on this before we go to break, and uh, you might be able to, to shed some light on this, Mike. Now, I've always wondered about, you know, my, my probably my favorite era of Star Trek, or at least the one that I, I'd like to see explored more, you know, as I've said before, is that era right after the end of Star Trek the motion picture but I'd like to see the entire era filled in between the end of the motion picture and the beginning of Star Trek 2 to me it's you know there, there was a series of books out a couple years back called The Lost Years that talked about the end of the five year mission leading up to Star Trek the motion picture but there's a second era of Lost Years you know between the motion picture and Star Trek 2 I want to know what happened? You know, Kirk fought so hard to get the Enterprise back. You know, he, he had come to regret being in the Admiralty and, and accepting his promotion and everything. He, he wanted nothing more than, than to command the Enterprise again. And everything worked out. He, you know, at the end of the motion picture, he's got his ship back. You know, his, his rival, if you want to call him that, Decker was gone off to other dimensions and all that. Everything was back perfect for him. Yet when we start this movie, he's back to being an admiral, you know, and, and he's pining for the Enterprise again. So what happened? Why in the world would he do it twice? Why would he give it all up? And I, I think there's a great story in there somewhere. How, and I'm long, just how long a span of time was there supposed to be between that movie and, and between, Star Trek 2? See, between the end of this, you know, the supposed end of the mission and Star Trek the motion picture, there's something like two and a half years. That's right, two and a half years. But between the end of the mission and um, Star Trek II, there's, what, about ten years, I think? Something like that? That sounds right to me. I had to figure it out when I was writing my Star Trek story, and I have, in my story, Spock says something about he's been a teaching captain for 16 years, and I don't remember how I arrived at that figure. It may have been looking at the chronology that Pocket Books published and deciding... Well, Kirk says, you know, several times in this movie, he throws out the either he or Khan throw out fifteen years as has right. how long it's been between Space, Space Seed, Seed yeah. and this. The Space Seed was a first season episode, so, yeah, so. You know, sub- subtract five years for the mission, and then another two and a half years. So there's about seven and a half years between Star Trek: The Motion yeah, Picture I guess and Star right. Trek Two. Yeah. So what happened? I always imagined that there was a second, and I, I think that this was even acknowledged in at least the books, that Kirk had a second five-year mission in, you know, like post-Star Trek The Motion Picture. So say Could there was be. a whole second five-year mission, then what? He, he re-promoted, uh, you know, back to the Admiralty again? Well, I, I don't know what the I don't know I don't think there is a definitive answer. One thing that what, that Star Trek Generations makes me think of is that we see Kirk never quite gave up on the dream of retiring and living a quiet life with a woman he loves and you know chopping wood and making breakfast and all that kind of domestic stuff because when he's in the Nexus that's his fantasy is right. this ordinary life. So maybe he decided he was going to give it another try retiring, but also. 
and I know I've said this on the forum, I never got the impression anything happened other than the V'ger crisis was averted and Kirk's field promotion or demotion to captaincy was terminated. And he, you know, I never took it to be as anything other than temporary that he was in command of the Enterprise in the motion picture. Right. Um, and in fact, in McIntyre's novel, though, it probably supports your interpretation more because I think McCoy at one part, one point says explicitly, you should never have given up the Enterprise after Voyager. So I think uh, she at least would agree with you that something happened. Uh, you know, there were more adventures and then Kirk once again walked away from it. And you're right, you know, it, maybe it was pressure from Starfleet because we're going to see in the next movie, Admiral Morrow thinks it's time for the Enterprise to hang it up. And in Star Trek Two, it's being used quote-unquote, just as a training ship. Uh, well, right. What I'm wondering I mean, is why haven't there been... There's been so many books. Why aren't there any books in this time period? Are there any books in that time that, that was my Yeah, that was my question to Mike. Do you know of any books or stories that take place that, that maybe fill that story in a little not bit? Not to address it directly. I mean, judging from the cover art of a lot of those early pocket novels where they're wearing TMP uniforms, there are some adventures set in that time period. But I don't know... Unfortunately, yeah, it's it's kind of you can't always judge a book by its cover. Yeah, it's it's say, like those yeah. records that came out. You know, there was yeah. a whole bunch of those story of records that that had Kirk and Spock and and the guys in their TMP outfits. But then when you'd actually buy them and listen to them, a lot of them were just repackaging of yeah. the of the old ones we had. Yeah. You know, Chris had listened to when we were kids. So most of those books, I love the covers, and I even like a lot of those stories because in my mind. I put those uniforms on them, but if you're a geek enough to be able to figure out where the story actually is supposed <laughs> to be taking place, you realize that most of them are within the five-year mission. And yeah. I'm disappointed by that because that was one of the things that got me reading those novels as a kid was because I thought they were specifically taking place right after the motion picture. For one thing, the motion picture is the first book you know, of, yes. the, of the pocketbooks. Yes. Yeah. So everything that comes later, like Entropy Effect and all that, because they had those covers you're talking about, I thought were supposed to be subsequent adventures taking place after TMP, and that's just simply not the case, unfortunately. But like you say, a lot of them could be. I mean, there's nothing in most of them to contradict. If you want to put it in that time frame, you could. It's well, just they never directly address the ramifications right. of V'ger and what happened directly after Christopher Bennett's novel *Ex Machina* is about the only one I know. I think I'm mispronouncing that, but you know that's there not the only one. That's, that's only the last few years. There are a couple others because I want to see that one triangle. I think is specifically. I think that one actually references well, that could that be. it's afterwards. Yeah. but it's been yeah. so long since I read that book. I, yeah, that that that's the problem is that there's not. They were never made to all play in the same sandbox. Everybody was just kind of allowed to do their own individual thing, and it, it makes it really hard to to pinpoint a lot of them. Because a lot of them, I don't know whether it's purposely or not, but a lot of them are just vague on exactly where in the Star Trek, you know, the, the original series timeline they're supposed to be taking place. Right. What the first mission, the second mission, you know, post-TMP, before TMP, they just don't say. It was maybe purposely like that to maybe make them hold up longer, or... <laughs> it, could, it could be. Or not to step on future movies. But that's uh, that's all I've got for Star Trek 2. I know we're running a little long, so you want to take a break and come I'm, back to Star Trek 3? I am ready to, to advance on to the search <laughs> for Spock. 
drive away your worries and cares at this drive-in theater, where you will see the finest motion pictures of all time soon to be released. Drama, comedy, adventure, excitement, something for everyone. Here's a brief glimpse of some of the truly fine pictures we've scheduled in the near future. I will be satisfied when we have enough more like her to commence phase three. See, the terrifying invasion of the beach party. See, a United States astro-robot become a creature of death. they've loved, all that they've fought for, all that they've stood for, will now be put to the test. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. The word, sir, the word is no. I am therefore going anyway. You do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. Engage all the systems. They're all moorings. Cleared, sir. One quarter impulse power. Someone is stealing the Enterprise. Warp speed. She's arming torpedoes. Shields up. The shield's non-responsive. We're a sitting duck. Join us on this, the final voyage of the Starship Enterprise. Star Trek III, a search for Spock. The adventure continues. Rated PG. I got us recording, so we'll go. Okay. Uh, Scott? Think he's, he's still Skype there? Trouble again? No, he's still up there on Skype. Yeah. Uh, did, I don't. Did he say he was say yeah, he was going to go thought, take a piss or something? I thought he said he was back. I, I thought he was here, ready to go. I just hope he has a shorter intro for part two. <laughs> 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 I forgot. I would. I like to write ones in like one paragraph, but I don't know. Unless I get the energy drink in me. And then it's all over. Oh, you should, have you tried that uh, throwback Pepsi with the real sugar? Yes, because, I have. I saw is it. Good? It is good. It, well, <laughs> it, you don't really know how good it is 
until you get take that first swig of it and it has that taste that didn't you know doesn't exist anymore it's not as sickly sweet somebody's texting me again i thought i heard I scott i didn't hear his we should title this episode the search for scott you go wait let me um i've messaged him a couple times and i haven't seen anything either it doesn't say that he's well, he's still cloaked anyway, so I can't tell what the deal is with him, you know. Have to lower his shields before he can contribute to the discussion. I stay cloaked a lot of the time, too, so I can sneak up on people, see who's up there and sneak up on them. But, yeah, they're oh, making my... Oh. Here I am. I'm back. Hey. <laughs> we were just talking ah. about soft throwback soft drinks. They have Mountain Dew, too. Throwback soft? You mean like like for cavemen or something? Or? Yeah, they have real sugar real in Real sugar instead then, of artificial sweetness. I got oh, I got okay. the throwback Pepsi. It has the original packaging, except it's on a plastic bottle, which didn't exist then. But it's it literally has six ingredients. Wow! <laughs> yeah, that is that is a throwback. Yeah, I want the, I want the throwback. The, the tabs, the pull tabs that you could leave all over and like people cut their feet on them and stuff. You you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those, that, yeah, those aren't coming back. Off. I used to like oh, to throw them the into lakes days. and fish would attack them. Where yep. were you, man? Were you taking a piss or something? I cannot say. <laughs> okay, whatever, man. <laughs> it's a forbidden subject. <laughs> Just like the Genesis planet in Star Trek 3. <laughs> you see how I did that? That's a nice segue. That was brilliant. <laughs> so now, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Now, uh, all right, I let you guys run first last time. I'm going to run first on my reminiscences this time. Go for it. This this is the first Star Trek movie that I saw at the movies, and me too. It, it wasn't at a theater. It was actually it was at the Black River Drive-In, and I'm telling you, there is nothing more awesome. In the Enterprise up on a giant, oh, yeah. giant drive-in movie screen. It was awesome. I was there. And, uh, yeah, I think we we did go yes, see this together. Did. I think your dad, I think it was you, me, and your dad. It might yeah. have been your, your mom and Holly might have gone, too. It might have been the whole, yeah, whole fam damnly. I, I can actually remember my third time seeing it the most clearly because that was when I went with... Uh, my uncle Gary and, and his wife and Michelle had come up, and we all went to see it. And I know that was my third time. I can't remember who I saw it with my second time, but I know I saw it at least three times at the drive-in. And then, you know, of course, it came out, you know, later on HBO and videotape and all that. And uh, this one, next to the motion picture, this is my favorite one. You know, if you take motion picture out of the equation, this would be my favorite one, just for so many reasons. I love Star Trek 2, I really do, but this one to me is like Star Trek 2 plus. There's something about the, the storyline in this one that just speaks right to me. And I think part of that is, I like movies where there's a, a, a whole series of movies that maybe they're a little bit formulaic. I like when there's one that kind of breaks away from that formula. And this is the one to me that, that breaks away from the Star Trek formula. They're not on a mission. They're not saving some race of aliens or delivering a vaccine right. or, or gathering the Quattro Triticale or whatever. This is Kirk 
is saying to hell with everybody and everything else, he's got to save his friend. You know, this is all about friendship and family and, and devotion and duty and, and honor to his friend. And that's that whole message speaks to me. I really, really like that. And uh, that's what makes this an awesome movie to me. Yeah. What I liked about this movie is this one, beyond Wrath of Khan, goes more, probably had an even lower budget mm-hmm. and went more into the TV show with the characterization and stuff. And I think that owes to the, it was Nimoy directed it, right? Yes. So there you go. You first. have, right, you have a character from the show. You know, he's, he's going to give a little more attention to the crew than Nicholas Meyer. Nicholas Meyer's. Nicholas Myers sort of, I would imagine, would have probably gotten outside of it a little bit, or was outside of it a little bit, was probably not like a huge Trekkie. He probably was familiar with the material or whatever and and said, I'm going to approach this from a strictly a filmmaker's point of view and make a good movie, which was perfect for Star Trek II because I guess for the critics to like it, you needed those elements. And the critics bit right, you know, it was just like everybody loved it. And right. Star Trek Three, the critics weren't so kind. They weren't really mean to it, but they were just like, well, it's kind of underwhelming. It's more like the TV show. But more like the TV show is a big selling point to me. And mm. there's the, just the impression of, like Scott said, seeing it at a drive-in on the humongous screen. And this one has a very, like, almost like horror movie lighting and lots of fog and red light and subdued light you know everything Mm -hmm. taking place in twilight or dark darker you know sort of shades and uh i like that you know it was sort of like getting spock from the underworld sort of you know yeah especially towards the very end of the genesis planet with all the flames yeah i think that worked really well in it and i think walking around on the styrofoam rock planet was something I like to see, you know, I associate that with Star Trek in a good way, you know, Yeah. and yeah. seeing it there didn't make me think, oh, this is cheesy. It made me think this is Star Trek-y. It, it, it almost said, well, you know, yes, those are star foam rocks, but that's not what's important that's going on here. That's just the, the, the setting for it. You know, there wasn't a preoccupation with focusing on the setting or the brilliant special effects. It was like Scott said, all about these these concepts, and it, and it was sort of a mirror image of Wrath of Khan in a lot of ways, you know, a, right. a reversal of, you know, that, I mean, at the end, they actually, you know, when there's even a scene between Spock and Kirk where they where they say back a lot of their dialogue reversed or mm-hmm. or switched around in some way from from Wrath of Khan. Yeah, and you really need that because. Either half of if you take the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, and that's all you've got, then you can get in some bad spots down the road. And likewise, if the needs of the one always outweigh the needs of the many, yeah, that doesn't work as a guiding philosophy in all situations either. So you really need these two movies together. And you know, my friend who watched Star Trek with me and I used to make jokes at the end of Star Trek Three about, oh, way to screw up Spock's understanding of Vulcan philosophy. He's he's back, and you're misquoting it, but. <laughs> But you really do need. I mean, it. There, there are. They're like you said. They're mirrors. They're bookends to each other, and uh, and even though Star Trek Four is yet to come, it sort of feels like, okay, this story is over when Star Trek Three. Even though there's loose yeah. ends, yes, or outlaws or whatever, you know, 
it, it feels like Spock is back, and that's what it's, you know. In some ways, and I still feel at some level, it might have been better, another heretical comment, if Spock had stayed dead. But I know that doesn't happen much in sci-fi or comic books right. or, and, and the like, genre fiction. People don't stay dead. So I, I'm glad we got Spock back. And, and when he comes back, it's it's nice. Um, and it's this this slow reveal. And he comes back as a kid, and he's aging through the movie. And I don't know how s- solid the science is in Star Trek Three as science fiction goes. I think it's probably not much, but... Uh, but I it think works. that's part it, emotionally of, it works. I think part of the criticism that this this movie has generated is because of kind of the. I mean, I, yeah. Why did he stop growing? Oh, okay. he yeah, stopped growing because he's away from the Genesis planet. And how did? He's Leonard Nimoy's age. Yeah, they got it right, just right. They put, they left Genesis yeah, at just but, just the right yeah. time. To, right. Well, plus the the body that regenerated was perfectly fine, despite that it came from an irradiated, you know, set up. the body well, that was in the casket would have, you know, I mean, he died of radiation poisoning. How did that, right. those irradiated cells render a, a perfectly, you know, regenerated being with no radiation problems? Right. And how you know, far but, back did he regenerate? I mean, we see him when he's just shy of seven years old, I guess, for the first time. But what, was there an infant in that casket at some point? Well, I mean, or a I fetus, know. you know, at some point it, was he it two cells and then... It doesn't hold up logically, but, right. yeah, you know, it's such a... It's just well, so plus the, back, you don't the life forms that were, what does David say, they were microbes on the tube surface? Yeah. They yeah. evolve. Yes. So why does Spock not, you know, why doesn't the Genesis thing take oh, turn him into Spock. future Vulcan? Yeah, turn him into oh. some, you know, weird, <laughs> you know. So yeah, there's a, but you know, I, I'm able to see all, you know, past all that because oh, sure. I knew that there were going to have to be hoops to be jumped right. through if they were really going to bring Spock back. But here, here's a question for you. I've gone back and forth on this a lot over the years, and I, I can't make up my mind. But when I was a kid. My initial reaction, my one disappointment to this movie, and a lot of it, I guess, owes back to my love for Star Trek The Motion Picture, but my one disappointment with this movie walking away was I always wished that at the end, when Spock, you know, spoiler, Spock comes back, when Spock's Katra has been reunited with his body, right? And the ceremony's all all over and everybody comes walking down off of the dais and all that. And Spock walks by them, you know, as part of the procession. I had always wished that they just kept walking, that Spock hadn't ever turned around and that the movie had basically ended at that point. Because I felt like that would really owe back to Star Trek The Motion Picture where Spock came on the bridge and didn't acknowledge anybody. He didn't respond to the human beings. They responded to him, but he was a totally emotionless Vulcan at that point. And I, you know, it's, it's not just about owing back to, to Star Trek, the motion picture. It's just somehow to my mind, I think that scene might've worked that much better if, you know, we strongly believed that he was back, but you weren't going to know know for sure until the next movie. Or you didn't know if he was going to be the same. Right. Exactly. What a great cliffhanger that might have been. You know, yeah, I, that would have sucked. <laughs> I mean, after all, after just all tell it like it is. 
after, well, why not? I mean, that's after all we've been through with these characters in the, in the last two films. If if Star Trek Three had ended with no hint that every that you know Spock maybe had a long journey ahead of him, but you knew because of that interchange with Kirk that in the end it's going to be okay. I think that would be so emotionally devastating or draining at the very least. You know, no, you, you no, no. And especially <laughs> since, like you said, this movie is all about the friendships. There's something, you know, as moving as Spock's, Spock's death, you know, he, he lays down his life in friendship. You know, like the Bible says, no greater love hath no man than this. And so right. Kirk does what he does in Star Trek, three out of friendship. And there's something, I think, very essential about Gene Roddenberry's view of humanity. You know, he's, he's a very humanist and I mean that in a, in, a, in a good sense. You know, he was very positive on humanity and our our capability not only to make scientific progress, but to make emotional progress and to develop as people. That that these two guys' friendship survives death and beyond. You know, that that you know Spock can walk past everybody else, but when he gets to Kirk, you know, yeah, he can't can't just pass on by. There, there's something there that, and it's slow. And well, the whole thing was between. I mean. The, in the in Khan, you know, Spock sacrifices himself to save the Enterprise, and in this one, Kirk sacrifices the Enterprise to save to Spock. Save Spock, and yeah. and you know, so those are the two characters that it's almost like um, when you read stories or accounts of people who are believing in reincarnation, and these people are playing out their karma together or whatever, so. Now I sacrifice my life for you. I sacrifice my ship for you, and so yeah, they're the two people with the with the big bond. There's a bond right. between Spock and all the and the others, and and um, you know maybe um, maybe McCoy should have been included too because Spock and McCoy had been pretty much about you know as intimate as you could be on a psychic level. You know, well, the I very mean, next person he looks at is McCoy. Yeah. McCoy does that great little tap on the forehead, you know, or tap on his temples. And, yeah. and I love the scene where McCoy is talking to Spock in the sick bay of the bird of prey. You yes. Know, <laughs> he tries to use the word remember almost like as a magic word that will undo it, you know. And he says, you know, I never thought I'd hear myself say this, but I've missed you and I, I can't stand to lose you again. That's a really important moment for McCoy as yeah. a character. Uh, I think that's a. That's the most vulnerable we've seen him in the whole series around Spock, I think. And uh, okay, granted, Spock's unconscious, at the point, but still, it, it's sincere and it's a beautiful moment. Uh, so I think, uh, I think it's there. It's well, I think that's a standout acting moment in the whole movie. Yeah, yeah. DeForest Kelly throughout the whole movie. I, I love yeah. that he gets second billing right after Shatner, since Nimoy's absent for most of the film. But it's it's a because he really. I love the scene also where he's at the bar, you know, and trying to give the yeah. security guard the neck pinch. Where's the logic in offering me a ride home? You idiot, you know? Yeah, yeah. He really carries his role so well in this film. Just yeah. That bar really is super cheesy, action. though. Oh, yes, it is. And like the music playing and stuff. It's it's it's. But I, even still, I still love that and. It's it's yeah. funny because I don't remember Everybody like when I was a kid I would see stuff and be like ooh that's cheesy but 
I remember seeing that and not thinking it was cheesy at the time, so it might have been something that looks dated now. I think there's elements of it that are dated that didn't look dated then. That uh, it's modern it's the then. cantina scene, and it's been yes. done so well, it was, many times. And, the, and, and one of my notes now that I remember of, from my lost notes was that the music and the background of that scene are very poorly mixed. So they sound like a crowd scene and music that have been can it didn't sound like there was music playing in there, you know. It sounded like they shot it on a silent set and then dubbed music and voices over it. Mm-hmm. And I that think it could be, but it might also be I think uh, because I I'm the kind of person who stays for the credits and you guys probably are too. I think it's a song called Remember Me that it's playing, so maybe they want to highlight that melody right. for people. I don't recognize the song, but uh, maybe people who would would know the title and appreciate the in joke about uh, remembering at that moment, but ah, yeah, maybe maybe one of somebody's girlfriend wrote it or something too, and they wanted to get it, you know, <laughs> get it in there. Could be. Hey, Frank Stallone used to get movies and his music into Rocky movies. <laughs> Here's my thing with Star Trek Three that that doesn't hold. That I noticed this without benefit of watching it with my wife. This is one I've always worried about and wondered about. Worried is too strong a word. I've always thought about. There is no logical reason for Kirk to be going after Spock's body. That's one of my notes as well. No, it makes no, if you stop and think about it, the whole quest, and so you shouldn't because otherwise you ruin the movie for yourself. But there's right. no reason because I, I when, when Sarek says you must bring them both to Vulcan, I take it to mean Bring McCoy to Vulcan because right. he's got them both. Right, because they're they just going to set him Discovered, they don't know the photon tubes soft landed. In fact, in the novelization, not that it's canon, but in the novel, there's a whole thing about we learned that Lieutenant Savick programmed the photon torpedo tube to make a soft landing because she thought it, she didn't want Spock, you know, going up in flames. Or no, I'm right. sorry, I got it. She programmed it so it would burn up in the atmosphere because she thought that would be more fitting. So she's shocked when the tube is discovered. And Vonda McIntyre tries to do something with the chronology of events in the movie to make it work, but it, it it just it doesn't hold together. They don't, you know. He's surprised to learn the tube is discovered. He's surprised when Savick says, "There's a Vulcan scientist here of your acquaintance." Right. Why are they going to Genesis? There's no. It makes no sense. Just unless they're the responding to some sort of fate, or you know, or Sarek to say, "Go get Spock, them both to Vulcan." I mean, oh well. <laughs> yeah, they they. Well, that's that's pretty much what I have in my notes, too, is why go back to Genesis? Kirk didn't even know Spock's tube hadn't burned up. And what do they think they need the body for? They don't need exactly. the body. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's again, one of those it's... Back to the Future 2 moments that if you stop <laughs> to think about it, it, the whole thing just falls apart. It's a shame but, because uh, that's, like you said, the whole point of the movie is the lengths Kirk is willing to go to for Spock risking his right. career. I mean, I've always loved that moment where Captain Style says, Kirk, you do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. And Kirk goes ahead and does it. It's, you know, it's great. Um, so you just shouldn't stop to think about too much. Again, McIntyre tries to do something in the novel where Spock had written in his will that should he die in the line of service, his remains should not be returned to Vulcan, but because he didn't think that some transfer of his katra to the Hall of Ancient Thought could take place, and you need the body for that somehow. It's not clear even in the novelization why they need the body so eh, it's an unfortunate flaw but i can usually (laughs) overlook it (laughs) i always assumed mccoy just knew or that they think that kirk was holding out on the 
off chance that the since it is the Genesis planet. Well, and it, you could, yeah, you could read that into what he says at the end of Star Trek Two. If indeed Genesis is life from death, I right. must return to this place again. So you you could be right on that, Chris. That's very possible. But that's not that's very that's not very star. That's more Star Warsy. Star Wars right. seems to play more yeah. on on fate and just you know some sort of. Although I guess it wouldn't be supernatural because McCoy and Spock are linked, so there could be some sort of genetic something pulsing between Spock's body, McCoy, and Spock's Katra or something like that. You know, you could bend and twist things into shape, I guess, to make it make some sort of sense. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's not as elegantly plotted as Star Trek II. No, no, it's no. not. Star Trek Two is definitely, you know, uh, a little puzzle that fits perfectly together in its own context. Whereas this one is well, a it's, lot of, it's a lot of fits better. better but fit. is there still some? There's still some oh, problems. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we didn't we didn't even go into the whole thing about Khan and Chekhov because I'm just so tired of it. Is why I didn't go into it. But. Anybody with any decent imagination can say, "Oh, Chekhov must have been on the ship," though. I mean, yeah. that's that's always struck me as sort of. Nothing to get too bent out of shape about. Yeah, and, and I mean, everybody's discussed Kirk's getting older and Star Trek Two and all that. I'd rather just do more, more of the things that have maybe been glossed over, or not gone into in depth. Which I right. Think is what yeah. We're doing. Exactly. And this one thing in Star Trek Three, I found my Star Trek Three notes. Hey. Mm-hmm. And one is, what's with Chekhov's collar? What's with yeah. everybody's outfit in Star Trek Three? <laughs> I like everybody else's outfits except Chekhov really? looks like a pink pilgrim. It, when they're, you're talking about when they're stealing the Enterprise, yeah. is that the outfit? Yeah, his outfit has always driven me crazy. He looks like a pilgrim. He, all he needs is a pilgrim hat. He looks ridiculous. But uh, now I, Kirk's outfit that he has when they're stealing the ship, and you know, it's the the outfit he would be stuck wearing through all of <laughs> Star Trek. It, it's okay, but the one I really like is when they're having a little get together in Kirk's apartment, and then Sarek shows up, and they have the mind meld. Uh-huh. That outfit that Kirk's got on there, I love that. It's I don't even know how to describe it. It's just really cool looking. It's very futuristic looking. I think it's slightly reminiscent to me of, of something from, like, TMP eras, maybe why I like it. But it just looks really that. sharp. But, yeah, some of the other outfits are a little weird-looking, but I don't think any of them are outright goofy except for Chekhov. Yeah. He's just silly with that collar. you notice that collar disappears pretty quick after the stealing the Enterprise scene, too. Oh, it's like no, the very next time that. you see him after... They've actually managed to get away from Space Dock. The collar's gone. See, he, he ditched that collar. Yeah, some... he's like, I'm on the Enterprise. Screw this. I don't have to wear this stupid collar anymore. I got bigger fish to fry. <laughs> well, and, and the Grissom Bridge being upholstered in pink is no good either. I, <laughs> I guess pastels were in in the early 80s. but <laughs> Maybe it was just made to make them look more pompous and ridiculous and the Enterprise more masculine. And- I don't know, but I do know that, again, not to harp on the novelization, but J.T. Esteban's a much more developed and sympathetic and reasonable character in the book than in the film. I mean, this is the, this is where it starts, I think, of, of incompetent Starfleet. Right. Uh, that, I mean, ones. 
somebody else that I read long ago, I don't remember who pointed out, in Star Trek II, they send a military ship to do a scientific mission. And in Star Trek III, they send a scientific ship to do what they surely know is going to end up being a military situation. Right. <laughs> and and Esteban, I, how did he get to be a captain with this attitude of, you know, everything by the book? And I'm going to call Starfleet to see if it's okay to beam up Captain Spock, who's back from the freaking dead? Come on, man. <laughs> we saw Picard do that in that one TNG episode where he lives the alternate life of playing it in tapestry. He's playing it safe. He never gets to be more than a junior science officer or something. Right. You know? yeah. We don't get to be captain. Like, I don't. JTS the bond in the film, I can't stand. Admiral Morrow in the film, I can't stand. He's so dismissive of Vulcan mysticism. And again, in the novel, to her credit, McIntyre makes him a more believable, more realistic, more sympathetic character who's really would love to help Kirk, but for X, Y, and Z. We can't do this, Jim. Do it, and I, yeah. I always have to laugh, though, when he says, Jim, your career stands for rationality. Right. Now, honestly, if you looked at Kirk from the original series, yeah. would you think – I mean, he's well, not maybe, a crazy man, but well, would maybe, you think – Maybe the rest of Starfleet are all <laughs> – captains are all – they're like they're more like um, – w- uh, what's his name from uh, the Doomsday Machine, you know? Decker? <laughs> yeah. That I mean, scene – is one of my absolute favorites in that entire movie. And it took me a while to figure out why I like it so much. But when he said, because on the surface, what Morrow is saying doesn't seem to make sense. He's saying your career, you know, stands for rationality, not, you know, intellectual chaos, but it's not really so much Morrow's words is that look at Kirk because We, we get the close-up on Kirk, and the camera does a slow pan in on Kirk. And I like to imagine when I'm watching that scene, what he's really hearing is Spock. You know, that Spock's giving the counterpoint to that argument. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite scenes, and that's why, you know, the, the thing I was going to talk about, you know, that we touched on before was about great performances by these actors – I, my personal favorite Kirk acting, you know, Shatner acting as Kirk in all of the films is in this one. I think this was Kirk, you know, Shatner really, really being able to shine as Kirk and show that he can act. That he's not all about just hamming it up and chewing the scenery yeah. and all that. Yeah. I think there's a number of moments in this film where, where Shatner really, really comes through. Well, I think and there's that's a couple moments of also where he does where he was starting, he hadn't crossed the ham line yet, but he was trotting up to it in this one. I think a lot, there were, there's two specific parts in here that really walk the line of, of hamminess and stay on the side of acting. But in future Kirk performances, you know, he follows more down that ham road. Where's that? Yeah, the, what are the moments? I have had enough. Oh yeah, of you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but I love that. Oh yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. Even uh, well, I love the ham stuff too. But those were the ones where where it was start. Those were that and um, Cleon bastards killed my son. Oh, I love that moment. I love yeah, it too. I love it too. Great... But uh, you know, if you if you dial it up just a little bit, it turns into hamminess. But yeah, it but you're right. Been he dialed did. up it, at this it, point. Yeah. Now I tell you, the scene that used to crack me and Randy up every single time we would watch this movie, <laughs> it would just make us roll, is where he knocks Krug 
off the edge of the cliff, and then he dives at him. He goes, ah! He dives at <laughs> yeah. Every time I see that, I just die laughing because we used to do that to each other, you know? We, we'd now, be playing you- at my house, you know, and we'd, we'd, like, set up ambushes for each other, and one of us would dive down on the other one like that and do that, you know, reenact. <sighs> yeah. I just, I love it. I love it. What do you guys think of Christopher Lloyd's performance as Krug? I think he's excellent, but I also think that it's a damn good thing that I never, ever could stand that show Taxi because I don't think he was far enough removed from his character on that show yet by the time he did Krug in this movie. So if I'd watched that show as a kid, I probably couldn't have gotten past him. Mm. You know what I mean? But since I didn't watch it, it doesn't bother me. Yeah, I guess I'm in the same situation. He's one of my favorite character actors. Mm-hmm. And he's a great character actor. He would be a great Klingon. I don't think he's get, he's given a few scenes where he gets to really be like, "Rah, I'm a badass." But you still you don't get enough of him. And this is a common Star Trek villain beyond Khan trait: is you don't get to know him enough to really hate him or to really know him or to you know. As, a, as an enemy to Kirk and you know I mean he's an enemy to Kirk because Kirk stands for what he does to the Klingon so and is a great prize to kill or whatever you know is Kirk but between you know there isn't that tension that was a uh, history between them but that's because he's one of my favorite character actors so naturally I want to see more of him and I would have yeah, li- I would have liked to have point. seen him more more shaded and stuff, but I understand that really it would have taken away from the main storyline. You know, he's he's a bad guy that drives the storyline, and I'm really glad it was Christopher Lloyd because I just I, I think he's one of the greats of playing over the top sort of characters or characters that are a bit crazed around the edges. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much what he plays. Yeah. So I'm assuming that maybe that might be part of his, you know. You know, Gary Busey gene in him or something <laughs> that makes him a little unpredictable and crazy. But it, well, part of it too is that the the Klingons were very nebulous during this period. You know, they they yeah. You know, and well, I think that's exactly right. I agree with you, and it's interesting because uh, from what I've read, Leonard Nimoy didn't. He was he wanted the Romulans to be the baddies in this one, uh, and for whatever reasons, budgetary or whatever, they went with the Klingons, but. Um, but that's why the ship is called the Bird of Prey, because it was originally written consistent with the original series. You know, Klingons didn't have Birds of Prey in the original series. The Romulans did. Right. And there was that business in the third season where they were using each other's ships because they didn't have budget for new, new models. But but I, I, I thought about it. Nimoy supposedly said Klingons were overused as villains in Star Trek. But they show up at the beginning of Star Trek, the motion picture, briefly, and not really as the villains. They, they're destroyed by the quote-unquote bad guy, V'ger. We see their ships in Star Trek too, And in the original series, I've got four episodes that have Klingons. Errand of Mercy, Trouble with Tribbles, Friday's Child, and Day of the Dove. Am I missing some? I mean, I don't No, get, but it's, it's, I don't it's get the where same he says thing, Klingons though, that... were overused by the time of Star Trek Three. I think Star Trek Three is what brought Klingons to the fore, really, in the right, Star Trek you, universe. You ask anybody that that knows nothing about Star Trek. Who's the bad guy in Star Trek? Oh, the Klingons. But isn't it, that because after Star Trek 3, it wasn't that long after that we got the next generation? And I mean, I guess 
No, I think they were the bad guys that just visually struck in people's minds more than the Romulans from the TV show. So the Klingons were... And plus they had a a joke about toilet paper on your butt that, that... well, yeah, but, but I guess... Well, plus, I mean, the, I arguably... twice as much as the Romulans, really. <laughs> right. No, I, I, I see what you're getting at, but no, I mean, for one thing, you know, the, the, the Romulans never had an action figure. You know, the Klingons yeah. had, a, had an action figure. You know, anything that you saw in, in comics or T-shirts or buttons or anything like that, you know, anything, you know, like the model kits, you know, there was a, there was the Klingon yeah. ship, but I, I don't know, that, was there a Romulan ship? I don't, maybe there was, I can't. I think there but, was, yeah. But, I, but just, they were, they were out there in the, in the public perception more yeah, than I guess you're right. bad guys. Plus there was uh, the trouble with Tribbles, which, well, that's, you know, everybody that keeps the, saying it's the most popular episode. I don't like it the best, but, you know. I think it's overrated. It's all right, but it's, it's overrated. But I guess it's testimony to the actors who played the Klingons in the original series. You've got John Colacos as Core and William Campbell as Koloth and Michael Ansara as Kang. Mm-hmm. The only really forgettable Klingon is the one in Friday's Child. I can't even remember his character's name right now. But um, right. So I guess they turned in such big performances, everybody remembered them as the bad guys in Star Trek. So, yeah, that makes sense. And Chris's point about them being visually interesting and the model and all that you say. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's just how it sort of works in, in the, the psyches of people, you know. I think stuff sinks in that might not have been intended. I think they did intend to be like, who's going to be the big bad guys in Star Trek and stuff, and yeah, I think the Klingons are the ones that, that, that and you can see the same process sort of happen in the next generation with the Ferengi are sort of trotted out as right. the orig- uh, the first big threat, and then, you know, nobody was scared of the sort of you know, right. monkey jumping little guys that were right. just obviously so, like, powerless so the Borg yeah. ended up being right. right. B- b- They're the bad guys in right, the next generation. Right, because that's what people yeah. liked, and we're like, "Ooh, the Borg! Yes, I like that episode." And yeah. so we'll put yeah. more Borg in, and all of a sudden, people are into it. And now, Borg is part of the you know, it's entered into the lexicon. Absolutely. Right. Well, I got a couple more notes on this one, then we need to be wrapping it up. I think um, the destruct sequence in this. I really love that, and yes. it's almost word for word with the destruct sequence from uh, Let This Be Your Last Battlefield. I always thought that was really cool. That was a nice callback. It was nicer that they upgraded the computer. You know, it didn't have the same voice and all that, but it was still pretty awesome. Well, I remember actually watching that part of the drive-in because we were just because it was just sort of rumored that the Enterprise was destroyed. We knew that it was destroyed, sort of, but it was... And then, you know, when it got to that part and it started blowing up, and I remember we were just glued to the screen like, holy shit, there it goes. Yeah, Yeah. I, I love it. Yeah, it is very. And the special powerful. effects are still really good to this day. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, I'll I'll play it at the beginning of this uh, at this segment. But yeah, we we had a strong suspicion that that major stuff was going to go down because the trailer that I loved and they kept playing it on TV and they played it. And Leonard Nimoy was on uh, that show that lights, cameras, action. Mm-hmm. And they had an all whole episode about Star Trek Three, and they played yeah. the trailer on there, and it was the one that ended 
and it just said in the trailer, the final voyage of the Starship <laughs> Enterprise. Nice. And I mean, if, if, if something was ever going to get your ass in a theater seat or, or at the drive-in, that was it right there. Absolutely. The final voyage of the Starship Enterprise. That was, that was a thrilling trailer. I loved it. But, uh, and it was well, a other- lie. Just a, the final voyage of that Starship Enterprise. Right, yeah, yeah, of that <laughs> particular, yeah, that's what they should have. This particular Enterprise. Favorite moment is uh, one of my absolute favorite moments of all of Star Trek. Of, of all of science fiction, really. And, and this is a biggie. After Kirk has, has kicked Krug in the face and he's fallen off the cliff and he's died in the lava... He slowly climbs back up the cliff, and there's a great moment where just before he, he stands back up onto the you know the top of the cliff, he just kind of looks and he shields his eyes and he looks, and that world is ending. I mean, mm-hmm. within minutes, that entire planet's going to be destroyed. Falling he and apart. Spock, yeah, falling, you know, being consumed. He and Spock are the only people left on that planet, and there's just something about. Horner's awesome score, which, you know, I commented on that with Star Trek 2, but I think Horner outdid himself with this one. I yes. love the score of Star Trek 3, and well, why in the I'll, world they that, release an expanded score, I don't know. Oh, I hope so, too, because that was the cue. That, that was the first the first soundtrack album I bought with my own money was Star Trek 3, and I had Star Trek 2 and 3 and maybe Star Trek Motion Picture all on videotape at, the, at that time, and I was mm-hmm. listening which which album am I going to buy when I go to the record store tonight? And I chose it for that cue, and then it wasn't on the album. Yep, it's not on there, yeah. St- it has that stupid second vinyl CD with only one side of it, and it's the, the disco arrangement of the main theme. Oh. <laughs> what the hell is this? But, uh, and you, you sit listening to it going, they put this on instead. Instead of, yeah, instead. yeah. So, yes, yeah. I agree with you, Scott. Expanded release needed for Star Trek Three, no doubt. But that moment yeah. is just, you know... How awesome is that? You know, Kirk alone and triumphant on this dying planet. He's he's destroyed his ship. His son is dead. His his people are gone. He's got, you know, to our knowledge anyway, for a moment, we don't realize that he doesn't have a communicator, doesn't have a faith. He, he's screwed. What is he going to do? The entire <laughs> planet is destroying itself around yeah, him. Yeah. To me, it's just, what is cooler than that, than, than Kirk... Amongst all that, I just I love that moment. Yeah, you know, it's it's just brilliant. And then you know he picks up the communicator and repeats the same call in Klingon yeah. to trick his way off the planet. It's yeah. just it's classic Captain Kirk. I love it. You just reminded me of one of my thoughts on this is that visually, Star Trek Three. I think Leonard Nimoy like physically set up the cameras like they used to on the original series. I think he, very possible. I think that was like where he, you know, and it looks this this one looks like the original series, whereas mm-hmm. Star Trek Two didn't look like it as much, but it sounded like it a lot. The music, mm-hmm. yes, and the music cues and the and the environments of the, that the music created were very original series, and in this one the environments are very goth gothic i guess but gothic mm-hmm. in not like goth sense gothic in like a cathedral you know sort of 
cathedral, uh, almost morose, not morose as much as just kind of eerie. Yeah, and understated a lot of a lot of the sound and the music in this is very understated. Yeah, that scene where the sun sets and David's standing out on the cliff yes. and everything turns. Because yes. one thing I've noticed there's a lot of blue in this yeah. movie, and that really works for me. I mean, it, it works in some of the happier moments. Like I love the returning to you know the welcome home space dock sequence and everything is blue. But then later on in that scene where the sun sets and, and Savick and David talk on the cliffside, everything there is blue. Yeah, but, but it's, it's, that, it's an it's entirely different. Blue. Yeah, it's an entirely different working with the same color. It, it, everything comes off kind of spooky well, and, and kind of morose. Now yeah. that I'm thinking about it, you know what it really reminds me of? Back in the day when you had black and white movies, they had these things called day for night filters. Mm-hmm. That basically were just like sunglasses that you put on the camera, right? Yeah. So that was for what you know. So it was supposed to be nighttime when you saw these shots, but you know you could see the shadows made by the sun and reflections of the sun off. Right. Stuff. Yeah. There's a there's a famous Disneyland one that's on one of my my Disneyland DVDs that if if you watch it's exactly that they just put a, a shade over it but it's actually uh-huh. filmed during the daytime you can yeah. see the shadows and everything yeah and and i think a lot of this is lit i don't know purposely but the way it's lit almost looks day for night it looks dark but everything's well lit you know what i mean you can right. see everything but it's dark inside the klingon ship and everything is kind of dark and when they're running the enterprise you, you you don't see it, but you gotta assume that like the hallways and all the crew's quarters are just dark and deserted, you know, right. just the skeleton crew on the bridge. So it has this really weird. It's a low budget feel because you don't have to hire all the extras for the Enterprise. That helps, but it it ends up with this really this feeling of isolation of the crew. Right, and, and you know they're alienating themselves from Starfleet and their careers and everything for Spock, and a- everything is dark and introspective and and creepy. Mm-hmm. It's awesome, and and I cannot cannot impress upon people enough the effect of seeing it at a drive-in. <laughs> at an old school, they still have drive-ins now, but they're not as big. They're just an old school, jimundus one-screen drive-in. Mm-hmm. That's it. What's playing that night is playing on that screen, and it's freaking huge. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, and all those scenes. Watching them now on on video, you can see that. how they look sort of like styrofoam rock and TV, but on a big screen it took on a whole different quality to it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, as, so, as, that is my second favorite Star Trek movie. Uh, the, the one scene that gets me is the scene where Christopher Lloyd crushes the, the, you know, he's, he's Uh like, I'll let it you know, crawl around me and then I'll crush it to death. <laughs> you know, 
Yeah. If he's such a ruthless Klingon, don't diddle around with shit like that. Get get in there and get your job. If it's a matter of pride, get your prize. Keep your eyes on the prize, man. You don't have to keep intimidating your crew, even though they know you're a softie for your doggy, you know. And I never knew Klingons had doggies. And I wonder why Klingons would be scared of his – I mean, I assume uh, maybe he's just got an especially scary dog, but whatever that thing is. Yeah, I always wondered why that would be. Uh, yeah, where it's like feed it, yeah. they're like, ooh, it's like, you're really? Like, is come that, on, you're a Klingon, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know, I know, we're going to wind up here soon, but before we do, I want you guys to weigh in on David Marcus as a character over both films. Uh, like, dislike, glad he died, sad he died. I I liked I liked his character, and I was sort of hoping. That there would be some sort of because there there was actual, you know, his character was actually interesting. He wasn't just what you mm-hmm. would think your standard mm-hmm. son of Kirk was. He yeah. was kind of the opposite of Kirk, but not in a stereotypical way. And he wasn't just like I. He was sort of like I hate you at first, but like a real human being, he he softened up, you know, to the whole idea of the whole thing. And his character was really good. And that's uh, one of my another one of my kind of pet peeves about. Star Trek Three is he's just dispatched unceremoniously. Yeah, um, he's done. David I mean, is dead. You know. Well, okay. Well, now, well, but I think Robin Curtis does an excellent job, given the fact that Nimoy directed her to play that part as a pure Vulcan. There yeah. was no more, no more half Romulan in the mix um, right. for whatever reasons. And I think I, I like her performance. It took me a while to come around since I, like I said, had a big crush on Kirstie well, Alley Savick. But well, I think Robin Curtis does a very nice job with the role, actually. Well, this, yeah. is, this is this is This is something you I like noticed. her better. Yeah, Kirstie mm-hmm. Alley or Robin Curtis? Robin Curtis. Mm-hmm. Well, this is something I notice about directors like Nimoy, who's an actor, and and you know Clint Eastwood is another one whose career as a filmmaker is fast overshadowing his career as an actor you know as a director is out outshining that and i think nimoy maybe you know this is all conjecture i haven't read this anywhere or something but maybe you know with robin curtis he made her play it full vulcan because he saw something in robin curtis where that would Bring it out, bring out the character for her. Yeah, like, man, that could I don't want to have her thinking about being Romulan and this. I've got to, I'm going to keep it, I'm going to make it simpler. It works better for, you know, I like her playing it this way. Could better. be, yeah. Might not, it might be different from the last Savic, but this, you know, it's going to work better for this actress. And he would be thinking, and it surely does, it... towards the acting. See, to me, uh, Kirstie Alley just comes off as too bitchy to me, whereas oh, Robin no. Curtis... No, she really does. <laughs> no. Whereas Robin Curtis seems very vulnerable somehow. Well, you know, because he, she sees, she's seeing Spock develop, and that's right. even as a full Vulcan, that's gotta... She's watching the most turbulent and torrid times, and and we still don't really know if she maybe helped him out a little bit with the pon far. Yeah, you know, I think happy so. Ended his pon I think far it's pretty clearly insinuated. Yeah, it's yeah. insinuated, but you never, you know. Yeah, you don't know how far it went. <laughs> right. You happy ended his pon far. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have pon far today. Oh, good. <laughs> 
We chain you well, down for Ponfar. No, chain you down. No, well, you get happy ending. You had asked the question about David Marcus. Yeah. No. Oh, shit. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's cool. Well, I helped but, uh, pull us off course there. So. <laughs> see, I can't... I, I'm... I'm Really sad that he died. I, w- I do yeah. wish that both he and Savick had stuck around. But my Me reasons too. Too. for wanting him to stick around are probably a little bit different in the sense that I don't see him as ever... I don't think he ever could have stepped up to be like, you know, to, to replace Kirk necessarily. No, I he think could he's have been a very compelling different- character. No, I don't think that was the intention. I, I hope not anyway, because I don't think he could have either. But I think he would have been his own man and, and potentially very interesting um, I liked I, the dynamic that that you know that came about between him and Savick especially in this second movie now yeah. one of the two novelizations and I want to say it's the third movie I, I can't remember but one of the two novelizations he and Savick actually get it on oh definitely it's in, in yeah it's, it's 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 amazing. I don't know if she, you know, she couldn't have had access to both scripts at the same time. I would have presumed, but it's amazing how much of the third of her third novel that's based in the movie is planted in the second novel, and that relationship with Safik is part of it. And uh, right, I think that could have been an interesting character uh, thing to happen. I really hate that they invented the whole oh, I put proto matter. You know, in the Matrix, and that's why this thing's a failure. Yeah. It seems to me it would be simple enough to say the thing was never intended to be used in a nebula. <laughs> no wonder it's right. unstable. Yeah, it's right. it just—it's some—it's something to make David atone for, so that he can die atoning for something. You know? Right, right. So now he's going to protect Safik and Spock by dying. I don't like it. I think it cheapens him as a character. It, it, He's a yeah. scientist. He's not and okay. He's young, but he's. I I never took it that he died. That he felt he was atoning. I one of the I don't things think he felt that I think the scriptwriters wrote that. I think they felt that, arc, right? You know. But he one of the one of the that. criticisms I do have of the directorship of this is the scene where he does die. He dies saving Savick from being murdered. Yes, and yes. I don't think that that is directed very well. I I think it's a little bit vague. It's a little unclear as yeah. to who is exactly going to be executed. And I think that they that Nimoy needed to do a little bit better job of explaining that Savick was the one that was singled out, and David stepped in to save her yeah. life. And that and scene I think is, has a his... lot of long shots in it where it could have been a lot closer, you know. Right. So it's unclear what goes on in it as much. I mean, you don't see you you, you don't you, you don't see David get killed. They sort of tumble behind a bush and you see the knife come right. down, but you don't know if it's a fatal. You know, you don't know what happened. And but I'm just talking about the fact that Krug that says kill, kill one of them. Savick. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And and I don't think that that's perfectly plain that she's the one that's going to die and i don't think that david saves her because he feels you know like he has to atone for anything i don't even think he saves her out of love i think he saves her for the same reason kirk would right it's the right thing to do exactly he's got the kirk it was very kirk-like of him the the way he does it too is very kirk-like it's kind of it seems a little impulsive or you know he just he just as a knee-jerk reaction, he does the thing that has to be done in that situation. 
Right. Yeah, I certainly buy that. I, I meant more like like what Chris said that I think in terms of the function of the script, he ends up yeah. dying a well, redemptive death. That's but, how I right. felt. I felt. I felt about it is at the be- going into this movie, for whatever reasons, they decided he wasn't going to be a continuing character. He was going to die, or they. I assume it was probably like, well, he can't doesn't want to do any more movies, or he can't do any more movies, or we don't want his character anymore. Well, well I wonder we if he was sick yet. It's at more that dramatic. Point. It could be that, and he he could have been sick, and they didn't know. And yeah. he was just like, I'm not going to be doing any more movies. Who knows? But for whatever, when the decision was made that he was going to die, I think that it was just sort of done unceremoniously because it was like, let's get this character. Let's let's end it and just end right. it when we end it. Boom, like that, you know. And Kirk gets a big moment, but not a lot of retrospect to it at that. So we can move on. Well, there may have also look looking back on it now. You know, this was only the third movie. I'm sure that they were going to try to keep the whole thing going. I mean, the movie ends saying the adventure continues. This may have been... They may have felt that maybe they were planting the seeds for something that would come along later that never really did. I mean, in Star Trek VI, we kind of sort of get a little bit of a, of a mm-hmm. thing where this comes up again that Kirk yes. never forgave the Klingons for right, killing right. his son. Right, right. But that, you know, that may have only been touching back slightly on something that maybe they intended to do more immediately to where... Yeah. Kirk was really pissed about this, and you know, maybe, maybe, in some story meeting or something, there had been the idea that you know, in one of the future films, there'd be a full-out war, and this whole thing with Kirk's son being killed by Klingons would be a major story point, and it just never developed or something. Yeah. But, you know, it, it may be. have been a bigger point than it than it eventually became. You know, I mean, certainly the uh, the second run of DC's Star Trek comic book makes a big to-do about the Klingons out for Kirk's head and because of the events in Star Trek 3 and the Federation and the Empire are on the brink of war through many of the first issues of that second run. So oh, cool. you could be right about that. Awesome. I think that's about all I got on this one, guys. I think... Yeah. And for anybody who's been listening, if, if you have no idea what we were just talking about, then what the hell are you doing here? And watch these <laughs> movies right now. Now, do not forget that uh, we need to set things up for our oh. next next month's Star Trek Monthly Shit. Monday. We need to fire up the old Star Trek yes. computer. Let me plug this sucker in. I've just moved my computer room, so I've got a the whole electrical <laughs> setup is different. Ah, oh, god damn it! I would have forgotten that all over again, <laughs> all over again the second time. I mean, it was so bad, it was beyond even recording the podcast. It wasn't like we were all done with the podcast, and it was like, oh, damn, you know what we forgot to do? Which we've done before. Yeah, we have done that A few times, but it's, you know, then it's just a matter of re-recording it. But this time it was just playing, like, go along with my business. What is wrong with this stupid computer? Okay. It's just taking time to warm up. Red lights on, though, so that's good. We never did talk about the the comic book adaption, too. I forgot all about it for Star Trek Three. I did read it. I'll throw it out there real quick while your computer is firing up. That uh, 
It's uh, the the adaptation for Star Trek Three is called Star Trek Movie Special, and uh, it's got a beautiful cover on it by Howard Chaikin. That's about the best thing about it. The art Damn. in this <laughs> was terrible. Oh my god! It's uh, it's the to- the artists are Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagran, written by Mike W. Barr. It does have a couple. Like uh, what you would call like DVD extra scenes, you know, things that didn't make the final cut of the movie and all that. But just the fact that the interior art is so slapdash and rushed and haphazard, yeah, it's really, really, really bad. Are those deleted Um, scenes anything substantially interesting? Not particularly. I mean, most of it is is with. A couple extra scenes of Spock, uh, excuse me, McCoy acting all wonky because he's got Spock's Katra in him and all that, and that's about it. And, it doesn't uh, clear up the whole needing to get the body back thing, huh? <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, it really does not. N- none, none of the extra stuff really adds much of anything. No, that's too bad. It really just feels like you know scenes that that were probably in the script and then just got cut for time or something like that but no, nothing substantial you know there's no great oh wow that was a really cool scene or wow that really gave me some nice insight into this yeah, character exactly. nothing, nothing like that at all honestly I mean the only really truly great thing about this is is the cover the cover <laughs> is absolutely beautiful but beyond that yeah it's uh, I, I was really really disappointed in the, in the quality of the artwork Sad trombone. Hey, I got a number. Uh oh. The computer spit it out. I didn't want to interrupt that fascinating conversation on that awesome comic. <laughs> the number we have come up with, and not as I'm looking at it, it's it's putting it in the third season somewhere. It's number sixty-one. Number sixty-one is well. Spectre of the Gun. Oh. Not a great episode, as I recall, but not a horrible it's, episode. It's got its, its kinda, points. Yeah, it's, it's, got, it's, its, got, points. it's, it's got its moments. It scared so, the yeah. hell out of me as a kid. Really? I, I kind of liked mm-hmm. it, yeah. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I have yeah. not seen that one in a long time. Yeah. So, all right, cool. Spectre of the Gun. All right, and uh, lastly, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Please join us next month on uh, the second Monday of the month for our next Star Trek Monthly Monday episode, where, amongst other things, we will uh, delve into DC Star Trek number nine, which is the first post-Star Trek three, The Search for Spock adventure of Kirk and crew. Yep. So I'm really, I'm really looking forward to that because I... I kind of have an idea where they're going from here, but only I only vaguely remember the storyline, so I'm and looking for it's good. the fourth episode of The Next Generation. Mm. Oh, that's right. What What is the fourth episode, I anyway? Is it the last outpost? It's the last outpost. Oh, I like that one. I like that. That's the Ferengi a good you were talking episode. about earlier. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh. Where they're revealed for the full threat that they are. And, of yes. course, we'll have Spectre of the Gun. Mm-hmm. So you have the specter of this that episode <laughs> looming over you now for another couple weeks. Mike, thank you very much yeah. for joining us, man. I hope hey, you had a good time. Thank you. I did, and thank you for allowing me to join you. I had a great time. These are my two favorite Star Trek films also, I oh, think. And, uh, so I was glad to be able to chat with you about them. 
And bring Ex- your expertise and gravitas. Yeah. Don't forget that. All <laughs> that gravitas. <laughs> <laughs> Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com where you can download all of our episodes and find our forum to openly and freely discuss topics from this and all other episodes with us and your fellow listeners. twotruefreaks.libsyn.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libsyn, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. The Two True Freaks now have a phone line where you can call and leave a completely inappropriate message. Maybe we'll even use it on the show. That number is 1-585-COP-LURE. That's 1-585-267-5873. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this show, why not review us in iTunes? And if you didn't enjoy this show, why not review us in iTunes? Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. We are now also members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check it out at www.comicspodcasts.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. Thanks for listening to Two True Freaks.
Khan, you've got Genesis. But you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me. As you left her. Marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. Buried alive. tear off your speaker, please don't be frightened. Simply turn it in. There is no charge for reinstalling speakers. Thank you. 